Good afternoon and welcome to The Breakdown. I'm your host, Scott Moody. I am delighted to have Mike Morrell as our very first guest. Mike is an accomplished leader in sports and media. He's produced Pardon the Interruption for ESPN and directed content and strategy for Bleacher Report. Now, Mike is president and co-founder of Quake Media, a premium podcasting service launching this summer. All great stuff. But today we're here to talk about Duke basketball. And Mike, perhaps more than anybody, has a, a unique window into the Duke program, which, as far as I know, is one of the great uh, unparalleled legendary sports programs in any sport, college or, or professional. We'll talk more about the program and and their legendary coach, uh, Mike Krzyzewski. But Mike graduated from Duke with a degree in public policy, and for four years, uh, he was the men's basketball student manager under Coach K and also under future D1 coaches, Johnny Dawkins, Chris Collins, and Steve Wojciechowski. Mike oversaw scouting stats and was awarded the Gopel Veridan Senior Manager Award. So Mike, uh, welcome and thanks for taking time to talk to us. I can't think of a, of a better sports program to talk about. Absolutely, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about it. So we'll get to to the you know all the inner workings of, of Duke, but first, just curious, uh, how did you make your way to Duke? Where where did you grow up? Were you a, a Duke fan growing up, or how did what attracted you to Duke? Yeah, I was a I was a big Duke fan growing up, which uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, was a, a bit of a rarity. It's uh, certainly a, a light blue uh, UNC state, little specks of red for NC State and darker blue for, for Duke, but it is a uh, I was in enemy territory from uh, from the beginning, growing up a Duke fan, and even to this day, most of my best friends are diehard Tar Heels. So that always made things tough on days after UNC would beat Duke, um, which was all too all too common growing up. And uh, you know, I begged my parents not to make me go into school the next day because I knew my my friends, my classmates, and even sometimes my teachers would would give me trouble about the the loss last night for my beloved Blue Devils. Yeah, it's that's a an incredible rivalry, um, and I recall it well. So, so you grew up Duke all the way, and how did you decide to to go to Duke? Obviously, one of the premier schools in the country, but was that a, a natural progression? It was uh, in hindsight, although at the time I was really kind of divided. I I'd also gotten into the University of Virginia, which kind of the way I was leaning, despite my affinity for Duke basketball. But um, I had kind of a unique circumstance that led me to working with the basketball team eventually, which was that I grew up playing basketball with a guy named Shavlik Randolph, who many people may not remember, but at the time was, you know, there was a time where he was the second ranked player in his graduating class in high school, uh, right behind Amari Stoudemire, who everyone will remember, obviously. And Shav was, uh, the recruiting war around him was, was insane because NC State, UNC and Duke were all fighting for him as was the University of Florida, sort of Billy Donovan's heyday. And I remember a story at one point pulling into my high school parking lot where Billy Donovan was standing on the sidewalk, just waving to cars as they pulled into the driveway uh, for school. And it was a dark recruiting period, a period where coaches couldn't get in touch with the players directly. So Billy Donovan had actually gotten on a private jet, flown up from Gainesville, Florida to Raleigh, North Carolina, just to stand on a sidewalk and wave to Shav as he pulled into the parking lot. That's how big wow. a deal he was. And uh, so I had the pleasure of growing up playing with Shav. And there was a point in time when we were younger where we were about the same size and about the same skill level. And then, of course, he grew to be 6'10 and, and world's better than I was. But we were co-captains together at Broughton High School in Raleigh. And his dad, Kenny Randolph, knew that I was a, a huge diehard Duke fan. 
and Duke, you know, they would do things like have us go over to Cameron Indoor to practice in the gym, things like that, that they, you know, to try to kind of show Shav how interested they were in him. And one thing that, that Kenny's, Kenny, Shav's dad, um, recommended to the Duke coaches was to reach out to me and talk to me about potentially working with the team. And of course, for the Duke coaches, that was, they saw that as a way to kind of ingratiate themselves even more uh, with Shav. And for me, it was something I had never even really considered. I grew up thinking, oh, I'm a basketball player. I'm not a manager. I'm not a, uh, you know, a student assistant. But obviously, once Steve Wojciechowski, who was the first person to reach out to me about it, once he first brought it up to me, you know, it was sort of a, a dream come true, which although that sounds weird, because it wasn't even something I'd, I'd even considered. So it was it was not a dream until he first brought it up. And then I was like, oh, what a what an amazing opportunity. I didn't even know this was a, a thing that people did. So that really, when he first started talking to me about the position, that really kind of made my decision for me that I was going to Duke. Um, and I was fully committed from that point on. Interesting. That's cool. So you guys sort of came in as a team and, and you had a, had a friend right there. Well, you must have been a heck of a player in your own right to uh, be on a par you know, like that in your high school days? Uh, it's nice of you to think that. And, uh, but no, I, I think by the time I was a senior in high school, I was about the, I, I like to joke that I was the 11th best player on a 12 man team, but we, we were a darn good team. Uh, you know, we made the state semis and state finals, or I should say state semis and state quarters there in North Carolina, which in the state of North Carolina, you know, a hoops crazy state like that was saying. That's a big deal. Yeah. But I was more of the, uh, emotional leader than the on-court leader, I would say. All critical stuff. All right. So, you you know, you're in your summer after high school, you're going to Duke and you're starting to get familiar with this position or at least the way it's being presented to you. And did you know what you were in for? Was there a, a job spec? Did you kind of know what you were going to be doing? Uh, I didn't totally know. I mean, I was, it was sort of described to me initially as just, you know, the managers are sort of the behind the scenes folks that make everything run smoothly. And a good day is where a manager doesn't even really get noticed at all. I mean, in some ways, it's like a referee in a game where if, uh, if you go a whole game without noticing the refs, then they probably did a pretty good job. And in kind of our own way, that was, that was kind of the mantra for managers too, is that we got stuff done, did a little bit of everything and you know worked hard and stayed behind the scenes and didn't kind of rock the boat too much. So that was, that was kind of the extent of what I knew. I knew that I, we would be doing some things uh, on the court, and then obviously some things off it, um, just to kind of organize travel and schedules and statistics and and things for the coaches. And you know, to tell you the truth, I was going in a little bit blind. I just kind of, you know, I had stars in my eyes a little bit when when Wojo, who I re- you know who I mentioned was the one who initially reached out to me. He was, uh, you know, I'd gotten a Scholar Athlete of the Week award my senior year in the Raleigh News Observer, and they asked who who was the person you would most want to have dinner with, and I had said. Steve Wojciechowski. He was, he was the, the guy that I really looked up to growing up. And so then when he was offering me a job, I was just like, you know, whatever the job is, I'm going to do it. Right. I, I just want to work for this guy. Yes. <laughs> okay. So you show up on campus. Tell me about walking into Duke, uh, knowing what you're about to be part of. You know, the Duke campus, I, I think I was on campus a thousand years ago and maybe peaked inside Cameron, but it's really a special place. And in particular, the basketball, I guess, aura, you know, is particularly strong. Tell me about showing up on campus, you know, about to be involved in the basketball program. I mean, what was it like? And and how does the basketball legend and history, how does that, I guess, permeate the campus, uh, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. It is, it is undeniable um, that it is a basketball school and you can kind of feel that everywhere. I mean, 
uh, you know, I think most people listening will pro- are probably familiar with Krzyzewskiville and with the students, you know, camping out in their tent village there on campus for big games and things like that. I mean, it is a, a hoops crazy place. And, you know, it's a, it's obviously a beautiful campus too. It's, you know, the, the kind of famous Gothic architecture and Duke Chapel and it's a pretty magical place. And, you know, growing up there, it was such a, always such a special treat when we drive over from Raleigh to Durham to see games. And so it kind of had this mythical, magical place in my mind already. And so to kind of walk onto that campus and, you know, to basically have a full-time job from day one working in Cameron Indoor Stadium, this kind of hollowed, you know, this cathedral of college basketball was, was a pretty magical thing. And so it was, uh, it was a little overwhelming, I think, probably from day one. You know, it's it's overwhelming enough being a, a college student, but then also to kind of get thrown into the fire. And and not just that, but get thrown into the fire with a team that was the defending national champion. I mean, the team I was joining was was a bunch of rock stars, honestly. They would walk around campus, guys like Jay Williams, um, who would go on to be National Player of the Year, Mike Dunleavy, Carlos Boozer, Chris Duhon. You know, these were these were players that were nationally known that had just won a championship with Shane Battier, who had graduated um, that spring. I stepped onto a team that was the defending national champion, and here I was, a, an 18 year old kid that didn't know what the heck I was doing. And you know, these were guys that you know that I looked up to and that I kind of thought were these gods of basketball. And then all of a sudden, I'm there, sort of right there with them in practices and in games. And I, you know, you need to you need to approach it like a business and be professional, but that's hard to do when, when you kind of idolize these guys as a, as a high school guy, all of a sudden to be there right beside them. Yeah, no, that that's rarefied air in the basketball world for sure. When you got to campus, did you, did you dive into the job? When did you start? When did the season start or when, you know, when did you start? How did you kind of work your way into the rhythm? Yeah, it, it started even before classes did. I mean, I was a I was working for the basketball team even before I was had taken my first class. It was we were doing workouts, you know, they obviously trying to maximize the amount of time guys are getting shots up and things like that. And even even if it's not a formal practice, you know, these guys are such hard workers and dedicated players that they, you know, they want they'll have managers come in and rebound for them and run them through drills and things like that. There's a gym right beside Cameron Indoor called Card Gym card gymnasium for those um, who maybe have been on campus. And that's a kind of a smaller old school gymnasium that even when Cameron is being used by volleyball or the women's basketball team, even when it's kind of out of commission, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, Jay Williams or Mike Dunleavy or these guys would call managers and have them come over to card and, and rebound for them and run them through drills and things like that. So really from day one, even before, you know, I feel like I moved in to my dorm on East campus, which is where the freshmen live at Duke. And then Basically, the next day I was in the gym going through drills with some of these guys. So even before I was in class, I was doing the manager thing, and it was uh, it's a real it's a full time commitment. I mean, it is forty hours plus. I mean, there's some days where we'd work, you know, ten hours or more when you factor in, you know, you get there an hour before practice, sometimes more to to set up the gym to um, make sure you're there to rebound for the guys, and then obviously when you factor in travel and things like that as well. I mean, I. I joke with people, including my parents, who God bless them, you know, helped me be able to afford uh, going to Duke. That, that Coach K was my best professor. You know, I uh, I certainly worked hard in school and I wanted to get good grades, but you know, I kind of felt like there were three things I was trying to do in school. There was Duke basketball, there was my education, and there was having fun as a normal college kid would. And uh, probably my more traditional education was the thing that suffered at times because uh, I worked so hard basketball team. And, and I just learned so much from coach K that I feel like he was, he was the best college professor I've ever had. 
I believe it. That's the stories of his leadership and the, and the examples of it are, are everywhere and love to, to dive into coach K um, in a little bit, but, but just, I'm curious, what is a, so first of all, I didn't, I didn't appreciate that your job actually had an on-court component. So you were, you were on court rebounding, running drills, you know, side by side with these guys. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of my fondest memories as a manager were in the run up to some of the UNC games, you know, North Carolina has obviously a reputation in particular under coach Williams for playing incredibly fast. I mean, they, they can fast break better off a make off a made shot than a lot of teams can off a miss. They're so good at getting the ball out of the basket and, and getting it right into a Raymond Felton who was there when I was there or later on with a, a Ty Lawson or a Kendall Marshall or now with Kobe White, who's probably the fastest player in the country. But some of my fondest memories were playing Raymond Felton on the scout team. You know, I would be basically what we would do is the team would score a bucket. And then even basically before the ball went through the basket, I was taking the ball and sprinting up the court as if, you know, doing my best Raymond Felton impression, which if you saw me side by side uh, with him, you'd know it's not a great impression, but it's a, it's the best we could do there in practice. And so I would just sprint basically at a dead sprint, dribbling as fast as I could with four managers flanking me two on each side. And we would essentially be running sort of a, sort of the UNC break as quickly as we could over and over again, just to get people in the habit of, Hey, even on a make, you got to get back like crazy because these guys are coming. So yeah, I I find memories of doing that. I mean, I would work a lot with the bigs, with the big men, you know, we would do things. Coach K is, he's sort of, I don't know how many people know this, but he is unbelievably detailed with his practices down to a minute. He would give us a, a handwritten sheet before every practice of down to the minute what he wanted to do in the drills. And we would photocopy it. And the managers would keep it tucked in our shorts so that we could really be super efficient transitioning from drill to drill within practice. But a lot of what we would do in practices would break down. Point guards would go do things in one area, wings in one area, and big men in the other area. And a lot of what I would do is run through drills with the big men, essentially playing the guard for the big men. If they were doing pick and rolls, you know, I would, I would dribble off their screens and then dump it down to them and they would score or things like that. So there was a big on-court component and, uh, and, you know, not, not all managers were, you know, had played previously. So we would sort of, um, the managers would play to our strengths just as a a team of players would, you know, I was more of an on-court manager as were a few of my buddies there that I worked with. And then some were a little bit more, you know, working the stats, recording practices, concentrating more on video or, or other things. So it kind of depended on, on who the manager was, whether they were involved in the on-court as much, but that was one of the things I enjoyed the most about it. Sounds like a lot of fun and the makings of a long day as well, right? After class and yeah. then you set up the gym and then you're, then you're on court yep. kind of shoulder to shoulder with these guys. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I was going to say the, uh, the other kind of, uh, tricky thing from a scheduling standpoint sometimes too, is that from an on-court standpoint, is that also the assistant coaches like to get their games in too. I mean, particularly Wojo and Chris Collins were still relatively young guys who who hadn't finished their playing careers that much before. So a lot of times what they wanted to do is they wanted to get games in. They wanted to play pickup before our practices so they could sort of stay in shape as well. And so a lot of times what would happen was say we had a practice at 9 a.m. on a Saturday managers are supposed to get there an hour before at 8 a.m. to set up practice, which meant that the assistant coaches, they wanted to get a game in, would need to have us there at 7 a.m. to play. And so a lot of times, you know, like a college kid would, I would go out on a Friday night and then I'd have to be at Cameron Indoor ready to play at 7 a.m. the next morning. So I'd I'd get there, I'd uh, grab a Sani water bottle out of the locker room and I'd chug that. I'd run out to the court and 
Chris Collins and Johnny Dawkins and Steve Wojciechowski would run me up and down the court and we'd play full court to 100. You'd take the ball out of the basket and go. I mean, it was they essentially were doing it to stay in shape. And it was a... Uh, it was the most most fun I've ever had getting my ass kicked because uh, they would dominate us. But it was it was pretty pretty darn fun. And then you know I'd already have a good sweat heading into practice. Wow, that's a heck of a pickup game, and uh, and to be able to be on the court with those guys uh, speaks speaks to your game. Tell me about the trash talking in those pickup games. <laughs> uh, that's that is a good question. It was uh, decidedly one sided. There were. It's funny you should say that because. I of the managers, I was probably the one with the most. Uh, that was the chattiest, I would say. And I did have a couple times where our director of basketball operations at the time, uh, a guy named Mike Shragi, who was a great boss and oversaw the managers. Uh, there were a couple times where he had to pull me aside after games and say, you know, listen, this is Chris Collins. You know, he was all ACC. He, you know, <laughs> and you're Mike Morell. You're you're essentially a nobody. I mean, he wouldn't say that, but that's was sort of the message that like he can say these things and he can do these things and but you can't and so a message was received i think it was the the competitive side of me and some of my manager buddies that you know there's there's an element of pride if you're if you're getting your butt kicked you know nobody likes to lose that much but you know if somebody's talking to me i want to talk back and and all of that particularly if they woke you up at 7 (laughs) a.m i think you should have a little leeway there i agree but you know but i also saw where he was coming from that like hey this isn't uh you know, not all players in this game are created equal to some extent. And so it was, uh, it was good for him to kind of bring me back down to earth, a little bit of a reality check from time to time, but there was a good amount of trash talk. I mean, uh, anybody who's, who's cross paths with Chris Collins, I mean, certainly from his playing days at Duke in the, in the mid nineties and, um, anybody who's seen him at Northwestern and he's a, you know, great coach, but a, a confident man and, uh, someone who's not afraid to let you know when he's, when he's kicking your ass. Yeah, it seems like there's uh, that's part and parcel of the kind of the swagger that that the best players seem to have. Yep. Okay, so so seven o'clock pickup game, eight o'clock prep the gym. What what does that mean? How do you prep for the practice? Yeah, so Cameron is a. I alluded to this earlier, but uh, Cameron is such an interesting place because it is, and Duke in general, you know, they now have a practice gym, and so it makes things a lot easier, um, like a full practice facility with multiple courts and things like that. But you know, Duke for his as revered and renowned of a program as it is, it does not have, or at least then it did not have the facilities like you would see at a lot of big state schools and things like that. I mean, at one point I remember we played at the university of Texas, um, there in Austin and we were all blown away by their facilities for basketball. And, you know, Texas isn't even generally considered a basketball school, but we just didn't have, there was not a lot of facilities there beyond Cameron and and that small car gymnasium, uh, right next door. So you know, a lot of times there were a lot of groups sharing Cameron. So, you know, if you'd have the women's basketball team or volleyball or wrestling or other groups in there, uh, you know, you couldn't leave things set up. So anytime you'd set up for practice, you'd need to pull out all the um, scoreboards that you could, you know, if you're running pickup games in practice, you could put scoreboards up or clocks, you know, so everybody can see that you have 10 minutes left in a certain drill. Um, you'd set up the video up in the crow's nest where the TV cameras record the games. We'd always set up video cameras up there um, to record all practices. You know, there were all sorts of pads that you would use. We'd use these big kind of blocking pads, especially with the big men. You'd, it's a little hard to describe, but imagine almost like a like if you're practicing boxing and you're working on a on a punching bag. We'd almost have things like that, but managers would hold them and kind of you know almost pretend to be just to replicate the big guys exactly. And you would you'd use it to kind of make sure they were trying to finish through contact. You'd be 
you know, banging these huge bags against these guys as they were trying to make layups and jump hooks and things like that. So there were a lot of things like that. I mean, obviously the balls. And then, you know, there are a lot of things we would need to, to do beforehand. Like we'd wait on Coach K's itinerary for the practice and go photocopy that. And then we part of being there that early was that the coaches would encourage the players that, hey, if practice starts at nine, that doesn't mean that you're here at nine. That means you're here at 8.30 or 8.15 and you're out there working on free throws or threes or managers are running you through drills. So, you know, it certainly wouldn't take an hour to set up practice, but part of the key was just that we were there in case players were trying to get in some extra work. Got it. And who kept the stopwatch to make sure that Coach K's schedule was was on time? Yeah, it was, even if you didn't know that Coach K went to West Point, uh, I think it wouldn't take long being around him to know that he has a military background because that is the way that the program is run. Um, and I say that with with the utmost respect. I mean, it was super impressive. Generally, one of the, if there was a senior manager that year, the senior manager would keep the clock. And it was really was like clockwork down to a minute. Um, and, you know, when I say it was planned out to the minute, it would be sometimes things even like, you know, from 9.13 to 9.16, you know, we're going to do this drill. And then from 9.16 to 9.18, there's a water break. And then, you know, he really would almost, you know, the, the amount that he would pack into a practice was really impressive because as I think probably a lot of people would assume, the NCAA has fairly strict rules about the amount of time you can practice each week in formal practices with the coaches. Um, I don't know what it is now, but, and I, I'm, I'm blanking on what it was then, but there's a certain number of hours that you can only practice each week. And so I think Coach K saw that number and sort of almost worked backwards where he was like, how can I break down the number of hours that I have in a week to make it as efficient as possible? How can I squeeze out just a little bit more work with these guys? Because every minute that he gets with his guys that's more efficient than another program is to our advantage. So that was, I think, part of his mindset that he was going to squeeze every little bit out of every practice that he could. And God forbid somebody caused the program to run off of schedule. <laughs> were there were there push-ups or laps or other consequences? Yep, that was uh there were times where he would tear up the practice itinerary and that was never something that players wanted to see because that basically meant that he was not happy with the way things were going and that we were scrapping the regularly scheduled program for something much more difficult and you know, I don't think I'm talking out of turn to say that there were some practices where we were instructed to wheel trash cans onto the court because there was a good chance that players were going to run until one or two of them maybe got physically ill. So it wow. was, uh, there were times certainly where he would, if he wasn't liking, you know, if there was, if the intensity wasn't there, if the attention to detail wasn't there, if it just felt like the energy level was low, there were times where he was willing to go off script if he needed to send the message uh, that he wanted to send. Sure. It reminds me of that scene in the, uh, the 1980 Lake Placid movie where Coach Brooks had them going blue line to blue line. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Remember that scene? Yep. In Miracle. And again, 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 you know, to send that message. Yep. There's a great Jim Miller's podcast, Origins. Uh, he's had some really great seasons there as well. And he did one not long ago about Coach Saban. And I know you know, I think there's there are certain traits that coaches like Coach K and Coach Saban have in common, and I think that's one where you know they're not going to let other other programs be tougher than them or be better conditioned than them. And I know in the Origins podcast they talked about how Coach Saban runs the guys through these drills where even if a player, if a single player bends over or puts his hands on his head, they see that as a sign of weakness, and the players need to run again. And so I think you know there there are certain things like this that I think a lot of these elite coaches have in common, and it's 
attention to detail and it's, it's this uh, focus on mental toughness and physical toughness. Sure. No, certainly evident in all of his teams. Mike, were there players that Coach K would look to lead the energy level? I don't want to say favorites, but but did he have his go-to guys, you know, or were there guys on the team who were who were the guys who kept the energy level high? And was there that sort of informal second tier uh, or first tier of players, you know, who Coach relied upon more than others to, I don't know, spread the culture? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I unfortunately did not have the pleasure of of overlapping at all with Shane Battier, but you know, his leadership is legendary. And even in practice, you know, the stories that I would hear about the way that if the energy level was low, Shane was always the one that would bring it up and that would chastise his teammates even before Coach K had the chance. Now I think, you know, anybody, anytime a leader like Shane leaves, there it leaves a little bit of a void. But, you know, guys like Jay Williams, certainly my freshman year, um, guys like Chris Duhan later in my career, who was an amazing four-year player. You know, JJ Reddick, once, you know, I think he became more of a leader later in his career, certainly his junior and senior year. Yeah, those guys, I think, were the ones that would that would really lead the way. You know, there was a little bit of a of a void, I think, after Shane left. And I think certainly my freshman year, you know, we had more talent than any team in the country. You know, we ended up having two of the top three picks in the NBA draft. But there I think there was a little bit of a of a period where Coach K was trying to challenge the guys to kind of step into that void that Shane had left from the year before. Right. Kind of see who would emerge as the, as the, as the player leader. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. So we're moving through the beginning of the season practice. You're, you're into the job, you know what to do. You're working hard on Saturday mornings. How did your job evolve and how did the program evolve as you moved from, you know, early semester practice and you're moving into, you know, first game of the season? Uh, did the practices change? Did the intensity level change? Did Coach K's approach change uh, as you got closer to the beginning of the season? Or how did that evolution work as, as you worked your way towards the season? Yeah, I think it kind of evolves a little bit from it's, you know, early on before the season has started. I think it's much more about the sort of the physical side of things. It's much more about getting in shape, about getting your shots up, about improving your form or your footwork or things like that. And I think as the season gets closer and certainly once the season has started, there's still uh, the physical side of practice, certainly, but I think it becomes a little bit more of the mental side as well. It's a little bit more about scouting, you know, who's the opponent we're playing? What do they like to do? How are we going to attack it? So I think it becomes a little bit more mental. And part of that, I think too, is just, um, just kind of bracing for the grind of the season. I mean, you don't want to you don't want to wear players out too much. And so I think that's probably the fine line that, that Coach K and other coaches are always trying to walk is how do we keep these guys in great shape without wearing them down? Because obviously, you know, everybody's playing for March too. And you don't want people to sort of get worn out or get injured because they're so tired or things like that. So I think finding the right balance of sort of staying physically sharp without getting physically exhausted and then really kind of spending time on the mental side as well. I mean, watching tape, we'd, we'd watch a ton of tape which, you know, were some of the, some of my fondest memories of practice, but also some of the most challenging because um, managers would always have to stand the entire time in the locker room as, as Coach K was walking the players who were seated through game tape. And, you know, he would have some, some epic film sessions, whether we're watching game tape from games or, you know, the previous day's practices, we would be standing there on, on high alert if he needed anything, if he needed us to run and grab something, if he needed us to, to step up in front of the players and for him to sort of show what he's talking about using us as, um, you know, sort of stand in players. So 
those were great. And I feel like I learned so much of what I learned from my manager experience being in the locker room as he was talking through things like that. But there were, you know, we would have conversations with each other about, you know, don't lock your knees and don't, uh, you know, because sometimes you'd be standing for an hour plus there. Um, it's not like you can rock back and forth or, or lean down and stretch or things like that. because You didn't want to catch a look from Coach K wondering what the heck you were doing. And that must have been something watching, watching him break down tape, uh, you know, or Saban break down, you know, football tape. Did you feel like he was looking at it in a different ways at a different level or were you kind of seeing what he was seeing? By the end of him showing something, I would certainly see it the way he was seeing it. But he was, and you know, I, I consider myself and the other managers, I think generally we're, we were pretty good at sort of the X's and O's and understanding the game. But, you know, there's a reason we are who we are and he is who he is. is he really sees the game on another level. And so that was, that was a real pleasure just to see him talking through the game. And even beyond that, I think, you know, the watching the game film, obviously there's a large X's and O's component to it, but so much of it too, was just sort of about the mentality you need to have. And, you know, he would point out some of these little subtle things that he'd really like, I mean, about, you know, two players connecting or, you know, he's so big on communication and constantly talking. And um, that's one of the things in practice that would, that would tick him off the most is if he felt like, Players weren't communicating, weren't talking. And, you know, sometimes players, you know, if you're a bit of a quieter person, you know, that's some of the, some of what he would really concentrate on with you over the course of your time at Duke is really bringing you out of your shell and talking and communicating and sort of being a, a part of something bigger than just you. And so that's a lot of the, what he would point out and what he would celebrate or what he would criticize in game tape is sort of pointing out things that players did on an emotional level or on a kind of a communication level or a connected, connective level even beyond just sort of an X's and O's thing. Those were some of the fascinating things. I mean, he wasn't just teaching you how to play basketball. He was teaching you how to be a basketball team. And that was part of what was so special about those, those film sessions with him. And, you know, on the topic of, of tape and X's and O's, who, who were the players that you, that you worked with there that you would say, you know, had sort of the Gretzky, you know, Tom Brady, whoever, whoever it is who sees the field a bit differently, who just sees the whole thing and it, and it makes sense to them. Like a sheet of music makes sense to a musician who, who was particularly gifted among the players at seeing the court. Yeah, I think, uh, certainly JJ Redick has got to be there at the top of the list. And I had the, the pleasure of being JJ's roommate for a year actually. And, um, so in addition to being a, a good friend and somebody who I certainly respect, he is a in some ways, kind of a basketball genius. And he, um, you know, he loves Coach K and he's, he's had an amazing NBA career too. And he's learned from folks like Stan Van Gundy and, and, you know, now playing for Brett Brown and the Philadelphia 76ers. But he, you know, people can hear him on his podcast too. He's just such a bright yet humble guy. And I know some people who are maybe not the biggest JJ fans, when they hear me say humble, they might say, oh, I don't believe it. But he really is. He, his level of humility is really impressive for somebody who's, uh, in a lot of ways, a basketball genius. You know, I always love the way that he saw the court, which, you know, I think a lot of times people think think of a point guard as being the one that that's sort of the the floor general and the one that really sees basketball on another level. But I think somebody like JJ, who's obviously more of a shooter, he was somebody who I always really respected the way the way that he saw the game. And uh and you know, his I think in a lot of ways, you know, Coach Gay has three daughters. And in a lot of ways, I think Coach Gay thinks of JJ as son. And so it was really fun to see their their relationship grow. And I think um, obviously a lot of respect there from each other on sort of the, the basketball IQ. And those are, those are two guys that see the game on another level from the rest of us, I think. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's always, it's always fun to watch the athletes at any sport who just kind of get it at another level. You know, I'm thinking of, 
you know, players like JJ and, and, and any sport, it's just, you, know, you can kind of see who, who just gets it, you know, in, a, in another way and kind of sees how the pieces are moving around the court. Mm-hmm. Okay. So moving, moving into game day, do, do you remember the first game that you played or, or worked as manager? Uh, I don't remember the exact opponent, but yeah, game day was, was always kind of a special, I mean, we talked about the buzz around campus earlier and it, it was definitely something you could feel. I mean, it just kind of, the air around campus was different. You know, there was an excitement and, you know, I think, uh, certainly this, this year on Duke's campus has been that way times 10, I think, cause, um, having Zion and RJ Barrett and that, those guys there on campus, it's kind of on another level from a sort of a national attention standpoint but game day was always a really special thing and those were those were very long days we would get there several hours beforehand you know at the time managers needed we wore suits to all the games so it was just a little bit longer to kind of get dressed and get ready now the managers are spoiled now i I like to joke because they they uh get to wear slacks and a polo shirt which makes a lot more sense because they're out they're running around so much and and you know rebounding and running to get things out of the locker room to bring them back and you know, wearing suits was probably a little overly formal, but that's a nice, a nice tweak that they, the program has made in the last few years. But game days were, you know, it was, uh, it was just different. It was, um, you had to get there early. You had to kind of, it was not a day for messing around. It was, those were work days and people needed to come in ready to go. And, um, you know, coach K really set the tone on that. He wasn't ever joking on game days. He was ready to go and it was, it was time for battle. And so those are the things I remember most. It's just kind of, how serious it was and how focused it was. And, you know, we had, we had a mission and the guys were locked in and certainly the coaches were locked in and, and those were fun. And, and, you know, for anybody who's had the pleasure of seeing a game in Cameron indoor, there really is no place quite like it. I mean, the, the energy in that place, I mean, it seats about 9,300 people and it is as loud as, as any place you'll see a sporting event uh, when it gets going. So those were incredibly fond memories and, you know, we would spend the games, you know, when the players would come out, getting them water and Gatorade, kind of knowing who liked what, making sure they had towels and things like that. You know, sometimes if you're watching a game, you'll notice out of the corner of your eye, after a player falls down, somebody at Cameron darting onto the court and wiping the sweat during a dead ball, things like that. We were doing all of that, keeping stats throughout the game and charting things that you wouldn't just see in a box score. We would be charting deflections if you deflected a pass, things like that. You know, there were sort of advanced stats that we were trying to track. So everybody kind of had a job and it was, uh, you know, we became kind of a well-oiled machine. And so it was, uh, game days were a real pleasure, obviously not just for players, but for managers. Those were, that was what you worked hard for in practice. So you could go out there and, and hopefully win on game day. Sure. And so you guys are, you know, preparing for battle and what's going on on the rest of the campus on a game day. And is it, is it different on a day that I'm, I'm guessing it is, but a game day versus, uh, the Tar Heels, uh, as opposed to another more manageable opponent. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, at Duke, there's sort of a, a baseline level of excitement and buzz on a game day, but obviously it goes up from there depending on the opponent. I mean, certainly at the time, Maryland, my freshman year who went on to win the national championship was a big rival. And at that point they were in the ACC and have obviously, and sadly moved on from the conference since then. But you know, if it was a Maryland game or UNC or you know, Wake Forest had some great teams then, there were certain teams where the, the excitement level was just higher. And you could feel that with the students. I mean, certainly Krzyzewskiville and the tenting and all that was not, was not a thing if we were playing, you know, a lesser opponent. But for those big opponents, you know, players, I mean, the students were, you know, if they were camping out for weeks beforehand, obviously they were doing that because they were going to be even that much more excited for that night's game. So 
yeah, you could you could just feel the intensity ratchet up that much more if it was um, a UNC game day for sure. And th- tell me a bit about Shashevskyville. What what is that? People are are camping out from elsewhere or yeah. Shashevskyville is interesting for me because obviously, um, having worked with the team, I never did it. So I don't, I don't know probably all the inner workings of it, but my understanding of it generally is that you, you basically are assigned sort of a, a little lot, a little area on this long grassy field that sort of runs and sort of see it out of some of the windows of the, uh, sports administrative building, the Schwartz Butters building that's right beside Cameron Indoor. But, you know, you'll get on a, a list there and you'll be in a tent with, I think eight or 10 other students, other friends of yours. And there's certain rules about, you know, a certain, at least one person or at least two people need to be in the tent at all times. I think they'll do like, do like tent checks to make sure that there's always somebody in each tent. And I think, you know, if somebody's not in the tent, then you risk losing your spot in line. And essentially what it is, is a long-term line to get you tickets for certain games. And so people would tent. It's sort of a, a drawn out version of the idea of like, if you were, lining up for tickets to a concert or a movie or a play or something, you might line up a few hours beforehand and you might set up a, a lawn chair so you don't have to stand in line for three hours. This is sort of that, except it's, it's stretched over multiple days and sometimes even weeks where rather than standing in line for a few weeks, you're actually sleeping there. Um, you're sleeping outside in these tents for a matter of days or weeks because that's how much you want to be front row in, you know, in the student section for that Duke UNC game or that Duke Maryland game. Okay, got it. So there's a limited lottery or a limited amount of, of tickets that are available and people line up. How does the average Duke student or did they in your era, you know, get tickets? Was there, were you able to go see the games or, or is it subject to this kind of a, a kind of a lineup system? Yeah, I think most of my friends, I think, you know, you know, some were a little, were, thought they were a little too cool for school to do the, the tenting thing. And I don't pass judgment either way on that. I, I certainly respect people that feel passionately enough about it to, to sleep outside for several days to get tickets to a game. I think that's awesome, but I recognize it's not for everybody. And a lot of my buddies would just line up, you know, shortly before a game. And that was definitely something you could do for, for a lesser, for a game that wasn't sort of one of the marquee games, but it it was pretty pointless if it was, you know, UNC Maryland, an opponent like that to line up a few hours beforehand, because you were probably just going to stand there and then find out that you didn't get a ticket to the game. So I think generally, if you were somebody that wasn't that wasn't tenting or that didn't have a good spot in the line, I think you would just kind of know that for those games you were gonna you were gonna watch on TV from from home. But yeah, I think I think for you know if it was a non conference opponent or something like that, I think generally you could line up an hour or two beforehand and, and get a spot kind of over to the side of the student section. Right. I mean, the at least on TV, I've never been to a game at Cameron, but you know, but the you know the atmosphere on TV is incredible and the, you know, the energy level and it's got to be intimidating for, for the opposing teams at 9,300 seats. Has there been pressure to double that like the other big time college programs or is it, is it a tradition and you think it's going to stay that way? Yeah, I think it's probably going to stay that way. I mean, it really is. Um, I mean, it also allows them to, to charge more per ticket. So, you know, I, while there's not as many tickets and I don't know this for sure, but I would suspect that the, even though there are fewer tickets that they probably still drive as much or more per game overall ticket revenue than most places, just because the, the price of tickets is that high. And I know as someone who goes back to as many games as I can and that who gets a lot of incoming requests for tickets from, from friends and family and, and friends of friends, I know that particularly this year, ticket costs were kind of on another level. I mean, there were, you know, you heard stories about people paying 
um, thousands of dollars for a ticket to get into Cameron to see Zion Williamson in person. And so it was, uh, I don't think they'll ever expand it. I think, you know, they've, they've taken steps to do some sort of things around the periphery. I mean, they've, the sort of the entrances to Cameron are much nicer now than they used to be. I think they've, they've done some things up around sort of the upper levels. They've talked about putting in luxury boxes and things like that. I don't know if they'll actually do that, but I think um, part of Cameron's charm is its size, and I don't think they'll ever mess with that. And the other reality is, you know, a place like Syracuse, you know, that plays at the Carrier Dome. I mean, they can they can have a place that seats thirty five thousand people because Syracuse is a huge university, and they have a lot of people that want to go to those games. There's a little bit of a cap on how many people will go to a Duke game, just purely based on the number of graduates, the number of students. I mean, it's a much smaller school; it's only about six thousand undergrads there. Um, maybe another 5,000 grad students. And then, you know, a lot of people after they graduate from Duke leave the state, they go to New York or LA or San Francisco. I mean, there's a stat I've heard that there are more UNC graduates living in the state of North Carolina than there are Duke graduates in the world. Um, So I think it makes it a little bit challenging to make the arena if the arena were twice as big. So I think it actually works out pretty well that it's at the size that it is. Yeah, no, it's certainly a a storied location. Mike, let's dive a bit deeper and talk about Coach K. And you, you've alluded to his, his leadership style and the lessons that, that you've learned from him. And, and you know, there are a, a lot of people who I think, uh, you know, really learn a lot of life lessons from sports coaches way beyond the playing field or the court. Can you talk a bit about how Coach K treated players, you know, what, what his core values are and you know, kind of what you learn from him as a, as you know, as a basketball coach and, and more broadly as a, a leader and a motivator of people. Absolutely. I often tell people when they ask about Coach K that everything you hear about him, all of the hype, all of the amazing compliments, I don't consider any of it hyperbole. I mean, he really is one of the, one of the people in life who I've, who I've met and had the pleasure of crossing paths with that has not only matched, but has exceeded the hype. I mean, he is he is the genuine article and the real deal and, and the greatest leader I've ever been around. I think in a lot of ways, I probably learned more about management and motivation and hard work and attention to detail and things like that from him than probably anyone else in my life outside of my parents. He is, I think he he really believes very much in mutual respect. He work, believes in hard work. I mean, he has that West Point military background. He expects a lot, but he gives a lot. He There's a lot of love that he has. I think what's what's really special about him is that you know you hear about these coaches like the Bobby Knights of the world who are incredibly tough and focus very much on the details and things like that, and then you see these coaches, sort of the Pete Carrolls of the world, that are like you know very player friendly. They're you know people describe them as players coaches, and they're they're fun to be around, and they love their players, and clearly build these close personal relationships. And I think what's special about Coach K is that he sort of blends those two styles in the best way possible. I mean, he's incredibly close with his players, forms this very close bond. I mean, he talks, he has so many different little idioms, but he talks a lot about, you know, the idea of five fingers is not, you know, five fingers on a hand if they're spread out. um, It's not very strong, but then if you bring it together, the five fingers forming the fist, I mean, that sort of speaks in a lot of ways to sort of his mentality of like, you know, bringing guys together to make the, the whole greater than the sum of the parts. And, you know, there's kind of a strength there sort of, you know, the tough guy military side of his personality, but there's also sort of the the connective side, the relationship side, the part where, where he really loves bringing people together to do something really special together. So 
I think what I learned a lot from him is sort of how to blend those two things, how to focus on on the details, you know, mapping out practices to the minute, but also the relationship things. I mean, my as a quick aside, just to kind of speak to what a special guy he is, you know, I, I left the program. I was last there about 15 years ago. But even to this to this day, my birthday is in two days, and I just got a card this week from him wishing me a happy birthday. I mean, so if he's sending me a happy birthday card, how many hundreds of people do you think he's sending cards to every year? And it's just, um, and these are not just cards that you know that are stock cards. I mean, it's I know his handwriting because he hand he hand wrote every single practice itinerary, and these are cards that he hand writes to me and to everyone. I'm not saying I'm special in that regard. It more speaks to just how impressive it is that with as busy as he is and as much as he has on his plate, that he's still one of the things he does is still take time out of his schedule to handwrite a birthday note to all these people that have been a part of the program over the years. So he, um, I think that's what's special about Coach K is how unbelievable he is at sort of the, the tough side of, the, of coaching, but also on the relationship side. What a special thing and a special memento and a great example. And I guess the little things, you know, that, that mean a lot and, and go a long way. And, uh, how did he blend? Was he a tough coach? Was he a yeller in practice? Did he, did he get on guys pretty good who weren't, uh, who weren't having their best day? Yes. Describing him as a yeller, I think would probably be an understatement. He is a, uh, he is a fiery guy. And I, whenever people ask how much longer I think he'll coach, I, I honestly, you know, I don't have any inside information on this, but my, my belief has always been that the day that he stops feeling that fire that he stops, you know, sort of yelling and, you know, and, and motivating and feeling as energized as he does, that'll be the day that he sort of walks away. I don't think it, to me, my, my best guess is that he doesn't have a, a three or a five year plan or anything like that. I think he's probably one of those kind of let's live a day at a time. And the day that the fire isn't there is the day that he knows uh, that he'll need to walk away. But yeah, I would, uh, I used to joke with my mom about this, that, um, you know, I, I was not somebody who cursed in high school or cursed growing up. And then, you know, I got to, I got to Duke and I would say after, after three months of being a manager and being in those meetings with coach K and practices, I was cursing like a sailor because <laughs> he was, uh, he, yeah, he, I mean, I've heard him, uh, espouse the F word in, you know, and talk about how it's, you know, I think it's among his favorite words and he certainly uses it often. And it's, it's hard not to spend that many hours around someone curses like he does, uh, and not sort of have that seep into your own, uh, way that you speak. So yeah, he added some four letter words to my vocabulary. You know, he did it all in the mission of, of motivating his players and bringing his team together. And, uh, but yeah, he, he's certainly not afraid to, to yell, to get his point across. So you did learn a lot. You learned some new words and, uh, <laughs> and all that other stuff at Duke. Yeah. Yep. And how did he set expectations was it at the beginning of the season, you know, hey, we're going to win the NC2As or bust? Or was it more of a process orientation? How did he set goals for the team? Yeah, I, the word process there, I think you nailed it. That really is, you know, I know that to reference Coach Saban again, I know that that's how they do it at Alabama, that they just focus on the process. And uh, I think that is a lot of what Coach K espouses as well. It's not, when he thinks of, of setting goals, it's not about, um, you know, we want to, this player wants to be uh, wants to score this many points per game or something like that. It's really about maximizing that team's potential and bringing that team together um, as well as they possibly uh, can come together. So I think it, it's a lot more about process. It's about running your own race. It's 
about not worrying about what other people are doing and just concentrating on the things that you can control, which is how hard you work, how sharp you are, how together you are, how well you communicate, things like that. So I think to his credit, and this is something I believe in as well, I mean, and, and not to discount the value in setting more tangible sort of concrete goals, like I want to be you know, player of the year or we want to win the national championship. It's not to say that there wasn't some of that, but it wasn't sort of spoken as much as things more like, are we working as hard as we can? Are we communicating as well as we can? Things like that. It was much more process oriented, I think, because, you know, at the end of the day, you can't, you kind of can't control things like who wins the national championship or who wins the player of the year or the coach of the year, or defensive player of the year, or things like that, as much as you can control things like how hard you work, how well conditioned you are, how well you're playing together, how much you're talking on defense, how much you're, you're focusing on watching game tape and things like that. So I think, uh, I think that was more his focus and that was more how he, how he motivated players and brought teams together. Yeah. Plus when you have the level of talent you have, if you work on the process and you get those building blocks, right, the outcomes tend to be pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. In, in general. Mike, I appreciate all the time you've taken with us. Just a, a couple more things jump out at me. And one of them, in addition to the, you know, the impact he's had on players and, and managers, uh, you know, like yourself and everybody involved in the program, is the amount of other successful D1 coaches that he's groomed. So it seems like he's running a, you know, a prep school for, for future D1 coaches yeah. And I think he's, you know, you see that his staffs are so, you know, they're all made up of his former players. And yeah, I think that's in particular, since I left, that's really been the case where these assistants are going on to great success at other schools. Uh, obviously, Johnny Dawkins almost ruined my weekend last weekend by uh, at UCF by knocking off Duke in the second round of the tournament. Oh, that was unbelievable. It was incredible. And, you know, there was a there was a part of me, a small part, but a part of me that, you know, it was a little bittersweet because Johnny Dawkins is as great a man as I've ever been around. He's just a, just a really, you know, he's all class. And, you know, I wish, I wish they'd been playing anybody else and played like that. And then his son, Aubrey, who had 32 points in that game was, you know, was a six, seven year old kid, you know, hanging around Cameron and shooting hoops back when I was in school. So it was, it was pretty surreal seeing him um, almost knock off the number one team in the tournament. But yeah, it's uh, I think it is a testament to coach K that so many of his assistants and former players now are going on great success. I mean, even guys like Bobby Hurley, who never was on Coach K's staff, is, you know, Bobby's now the head coach at Arizona State. Um, obviously, Mike Bray has had great success at Notre Dame. And, you know, the big question now is, you know, which one of them is going to be the one to ultimately succeed Coach K at Duke? And I think, I think on some level, there's a little bit of a, of a tryout happening um, across the country for a lot of these former players, former assistants to see who can sort of carve out the most success at their current schools. Um, to justify being the next Duke coach, because that's, you know, needless to say, that's an incredibly coveted position and it'll be a uh, big shoes to fill for whoever ends up having to fill them. And you think it'll be a former player? That's my gut. I mean, again, no inside information, but I think I, I would be a little surprised if they went outside the family to hire the next coach. I mean, there were, when Brad Stevens was at uh, Butler, you know, there were rumors that maybe he would be the one to succeed Coach K, but, you know, nobody's going to leave the Boston Celtics or, or the Lakers or something like that. Although maybe not the Lakers this year, but no one's going to leave. You know, I don't think Brad Stevens would leave the Boston Celtics to take a college job, even a job as amazing as the Duke one. But you know, that was always just a rumor anyway. I, I think it'll probably be a former player to succeed coach K. But the question is just who. 
Yeah, who and when? How many seasons has Coach K been there at this point? Yeah, I think he joined in 1980, so he's coming up on on 40, which is which is pretty amazing. And that wow. that's on top of the five years where he was the head coach at Army. So uh, you know, you, you put all that together, and you know, he's he has all the records pretty much at this point outside of the one that that John Wooden has for national championships. And uh, you know, every year Coach K is just adding, just putting distance between himself and second place for all-time wins and things like that. I mean, he is, uh, you alluded to this in your intro that this is not a program that's just great for college basketball. It's a program that's great for sports nationally and internationally. And he's, he's on the short list of all-time great coaches in any sport on any level. That's for sure. One of the things that has always struck me, and I guess surprise is the wrong word, but he, to my knowledge, maybe he, I'm sure he's had inbound offers, you know, by the dozens, but a lot of coaches in his position, they flirt with or jump into an NBA job and then seems like as often as not, it just doesn't work out well. And it seems like he's a guy who's rooted in, you know, who he is and where he is and it's the right fit. And, you know, he's just going to keep rolling down the tracks. Did it surprise you that he, that he has not gone or at least done a stint in the NBA? It, it has a little bit. There was a rumor there for a couple of days the summer before my senior year of college where he was, he had been approached by the Lakers. You know, that was in this sort of the, the Kobe Bryant years post Shaquille O'Neal, where he had been approached and offered a, um, a big contract from the Lakers. And, you know, there was a day, day or two there where I was, I was thinking he might take it, which, you know, on a selfish level, I was, I would have been sad that my senior year uh, would have been spent with a new coach because obviously a big, reason I was doing the manager job at all was to learn from him. But I think really what, what helped him with that is that he did the Team USA, the USA basketball, for as long as he did. That kind of helped scratch that itch for him some. I mean, he did, uh, I believe he won three Olympic golds, at least two, if not three. And, uh, you know, getting to work then with, with Kobe and LeBron and Carmelo and Kevin Durant and all those guys, I think, I think that allowed him to work with professional players and sort of get that exposure and get that experience without leaving Duke. So in, in a lot of ways, that was sort of the, the best case scenario for him is that he could, he could sort of work with professional players while also continuing to build what, he, what he's built at Duke. And I'll, I'll say on top of that, that this isn't just because he's a West Point guy. He's among the most patriotic people I've ever been around, if not the most patriotic. I mean, he is, uh, I mean, he loves this country and this and feels very strongly about it. And so I think the opportunity to rep, you know, some people may pay lip service to the Olympics or to representing your country and things like that. But for him, it really meant a lot. And so I, I know that being the coach of USA basketball was, was a huge honor beyond even just the opportunity to work with professional players. So I think it, it was sort of the, the perfect compromise that he could, he could do that while also staying at Duke. Sure. No, that makes sense. And then he put together great teams. Mike, before we wrap here, a couple of fun round kind of questions. And I'm always curious about the gear. Did you guys just get tons of free stuff from like, who was your sponsor? And, you know, how many pairs of shoes did these guys go through? Is there just tons of swag floating around? How does that work? Yeah, tons of swag. Yes, we got a lot of free stuff. Sometimes not always in our size. You know, sometimes there would be leftover gear in certain sizes that were, you know, like, Spoiler alert, I can't fit in the same size shoe as Carlos Boozer, who wears like a size 18. So, but you know, every now and then I would take a shoe like that home just because it was funny to have a gigantic shoe on my mantle or something. But yeah, we would get a, 
we would get a ton of gear, um, and certainly the players would get would get a boatload. Um, Nike was the sponsor then, and, and continues to be. And outside of their uh, the little snafu with Zion busting through his Nike shoe earlier this year, I think yeah, it, that was something. It was bizarre, but uh, it just adds to the to his legend, I guess. But I think they've been great partners over the years. And actually, um, a guy named Mike Egan, who was a manager in my class and, and a good friend of mine, um, has been at Nike ever since school and has really risen in the ranks there and is one of their top guys in the college basketball sector for Nike. So it's, it's fun seeing him. He was always actually the guy as managers. He, was, he really gravitated to the gear and he, he worked closely with Nike on making sure we had everything we needed for different players. You know, different players like different kinds of shoes. You know, some maybe wanted the LeBron or the Kobe or things like that. Obviously now Kyrie, former Blue Devil Kyrie Irving, has a signature shoe that's incredibly popular among players. But, you know, it's, uh, yeah, there was tons of gear and it was always, I mean, even to this day, I still have a bunch left over. I, I just moved into a new house with my wife and son and, you know, we had to go through all of our old stuff and it was kind of wild going through some old boxes and seeing gear that I've had, you know, for 15 or 20 years at this point, but there's some fun stuff. So that was definitely one of the perks. No, that's cool. And do they wear a new pair of shoes every game? It kind of depends on the player. I mean, some, you know, there's like in any sport, I think there's a level of superstition sometimes. I mean, I think uh, if you're playing well in a certain pair of shoes, you don't want to switch it up. And then some people like the way that certain shoes look with certain uniforms. I mean, Duke would, you know, you'd wear white at home generally, but there was, uh, or blue on the road, but then there was also some black uniforms that we'd we'd, uh, wear sometimes and even some gray uniforms every now and then. So I think part of it would depend on that. Part of it would depend on how a player was playing in a certain pair of shoes. But, um, you know, some were more particular about it. Some would want a new, brand new pair of socks for every game, things like that, where others were a little less picky about those sorts of things. So I think it would kind of vary from player to player. Well, that's a, a good segue into, I guess, next to last question. What other interesting pregame routines or superstitions uh, did the player have? Anything uh, noteworthy? Yeah. Well, JJ was, JJ is definitely very particular about his pregame routine. And I know he's still that way in the NBA where it's like, and it's not just pregame in terms of the hour before it's also like day of, like he takes, he takes naps at, uh, or he takes a pregame or a game day nap at the same time every day, you know, certain things like that, where he's, you know, he eats the same thing at the same time. You know, he goes out the first time to shoot and comes out with the same amount of time on the clock every single game and things like that. So. Um, I think he's a little bit more particular, a little bit more OCD about that. I think other other players are a little bit more laid back about it. You know, I think certain players would have certain preferences on music. Those are always, I think, like in any locker room, those were always uh, spirited debates about who got to control the stereo, uh, what the music was was that was getting played before games. And you know, I think there are there are stereotypes. If uh, you go on a little winning streak with a certain song that's playing in the locker room, then you're going to keep rolling with that song, and then. If you get on a little losing streak, then you got to switch it up. So um, those are some of the superstitions that we would have. But, you know, I think some players buy into that more than others. Sure. No, it's the, uh, the, the battle for the clicker, I guess. It's, it's universal. Yep. And lastly, how did you guys travel? Was it commercial? Did you fly private? How did you get so many big guys around? <laughs> yeah, we did fly private, uh, which was a pretty, I feel like I got spoiled in a lot of ways. And we, even at the time, we recognized that, that the way we traveled and the hotels we stayed in and the team meals that we had and things like that, you know, it was, uh, they were much nicer than what I experienced in my twenties as a, as a, someone in the working world who was not making very much money. And I would long for the days of flying private and things like that. But yeah, those were some of the perks. Now 
And that was one of the fun things, actually, as a manager, is we would, uh, you know, flying private, we would be able to drive the bus out on the tarmac um, right beside the plane. You know, you'd still go through security, but it was a, in kind of a, like an airplane hangar out there on the tarmac. And then the managers would, generally the managers would go through security first, and then we'd go back to the bus, and we would be the ones that would take all the players' bags off the bus and, and put them, load them onto the private plane. And so, yeah, obviously that made it easier for the big guys in particular. We'd have, you know, you'd get on there, you'd have Klondike bars waiting for you and things like that, or, or fruit or things, you know, whatever it was. So, uh, you know, I would have, uh, you know, I was at the time where I could eat whatever I wanted and not gain a pound. So I would have little competitions uh, with Coach K's secretary. She would challenge me to see how many Klondike bars I could eat on a trip. I think my record was, I think I had four or five on a flight to Clemson, South Carolina, which was a, a personal best. But um, those were some of the perks as well. Certainly flying private was uh, one of the nice things about, about being with Duke basketball or with any elite basketball program for that matter. Yeah. Did all the elite teams travel that way? Because that seemed to me to be a pretty significant competitive advantage if uh, if you can't. Yeah, that would be that would be a fascinating thing. I've never really figured out where the where the cutoff is. I would certainly think most, if not all, sort of the major conference teams at this point fly private. You know, the revenues that they get from the conference TV deals and things like that, I think are able to subsidize that kind of travel. But that's a good question. I wonder at what point do programs, which programs out there don't fly private at this point. And then, you know, there, I think there are probably times where we flew to a game that most programs would probably have taken a bus. I mean, like, like I mentioned, Clemson, South Carolina, or um, when we went to the University of Virginia or something like that. And we, we would always fly to those places from Durham where, you know, maybe other programs in smaller conferences might have gotten on the bus and driven for four or five hours or whatever the drive was. So I suspect that most um, major D1 programs generally fly, fly private at this point. Interesting stuff. Big time sports. Well, Mike, I really appreciate your time. We could go on for hours. I just, it's so fascinating. The, the window you had onto this legendary program before we wrap up, how are you feeling this year about the tournament? Uh, feeling, feeling pretty good. I, uh, obviously we got a scare last week, but, um, you know, it's been an interesting kind of, it's been an interesting few years being a Duke fan. I mean, obviously going from an era where we had guys staying more regularly three or four years to now sort of, a lot of our best players being one and done, you know, coming in for freshman year and then heading to the NBA after that. So it's been, that part's been an adjustment, but it's certainly, you know, there's zero complaints having guys like Zion Williamson and RJ Barrett and Trey Jones and Cam Reddish to cheer for, but feeling good. I think it's a, you know, the tournament always delivers and never disappoints. And certainly I want Duke to win. And uh, if Duke can't win, then I'm ABC, anybody but Carolina. So we'll see what happens. And, uh, but I'm excited. I, I love college basketball and I love this time of year. It's always the best. It is a great time of year and a, and a great month in sports. Mike Morrell, thanks so much for, for sharing your experiences with us. I really appreciate it. And maybe we can get you back at some point in the future. Yeah, I would love it. You, you mentioned you've never been to a game in Cameron. So we'll have to, uh, we'll have to fix that uh, next, next hoop season. So uh, we'll be in touch about that. But it was my pleasure, Scott. I really appreciate it. All right. I'm in. That sounds great. Thanks again. So that was our first episode. Thanks again to Mike Morrell for sharing a fascinating window into the Duke University basketball team. I'm always amazed at how certain coaches, players, et cetera, are able to sustain an incredibly high level of performance over long periods of time. And as we heard, uh, it seems like often, as often as not, it comes down to mastering the and repeating the basics well over and over and over again. So thanks again to Mike and uh, be sure to check out Quake Media launching later this summer. 
Thanks for joining the breakdown and hope you'll come back. <laughs>